All right, I believe we're ready to go, ready to begin. We are in Deuteronomy, but tonight I want to start in Philippians. So it's uh, generally we're in the Old Testament, but tonight I'm going to read a couple par- uh, couple verses in Philippians, Philippians 2. But before we start, let's take just a few seconds for spiritual preparation, confession of sins, and prepare ourselves to focus and be edified by the teaching of the Word of God. So let's close our eyes, bow our heads, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it is the basis for our, not only our spiritual growth, but also, Father, for the way we are to live our lives. We're thankful that throughout the word of God, you are encouraging. You encourage us through many ways, but we even have the words for encouragement. As we focus on your word and as God the Holy Spirit leads us. And we certainly ask for his assistance, his leading, his influence as we study tonight, both uh, beginning in Philippians and also in Deuteronomy 4. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I was reading today in my Bible reading, and I noticed that there was a couple uh, passages that reminded me of Philippians and turn to Philippians 2 and verse 14. One of the passages where I was reading, it was in Proverbs speaking about those who complain and those who murmur. And Philippians 2:14 says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. And you'll notice this doesn't say you should do your best not to complain and debate. It says in all things. And I love the way that very often Paul uses that. It's an inclusive. It's completely. Do all things without complaining. And the word there, complaining, has uh, a sense of debating but of murmuring and murmuring is very often something that we do to ourselves uh, or within ourselves complaining and murmuring against uh, whatever the situation happens to be and then disputing is truly has the sense of debating or arguing with someone so do all things without and i like the translation murmuring but complaining is fine Do all things without murmuring and debating or disputing. In order that you may become blameless. Another way of understanding blameless there, this isn't sinless perfection, but it's to be without fault. Very often we find ourselves, we realize that we've either failed or we've got a problem and we are at fault. So we are to do our very best in our personal relationships with others, not to be the problem, not to be at fault. So 
without become blameless, without fault, and harmless. Possibly not the best translation, but certainly innocent would be one here. So blameless and innocent. Children of God, without fault, we could probably say without blemish here is another word that's used, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Crooked and perverse generation. That's where we find ourselves today. And the words here, crooked, means dishonest. Uh, Crooked is a word that was probably very popular several decades ago, but we I don't know if we use it that often. Someone is crooked, they're dishonest. We also have perverse, and perverse is another word that may be uh, not so uh, much in our vocabulary, but another word here would be depraved, dishonest and depraved generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We may be living in a depraved and dishonest generation, but we should be as lights. We should shine as lights in this world, this cosmic system, holding fast the word of life. Uh, This is um, the word of God. This is something that should be in our lives every day, Uh, not only once a week, a couple times, but every day. And I certainly recommend that you might even start your day with a Bible reading. It just seems to get you off on the right foot. The Word of God, the Word of Life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. We've studied the judgment seat of Christ, and that's what this is a reference. It refers to the our appearance, at the judgment seat of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And we can see this, Paul saying, speaking to the Philippians, that they need to live a spiritual life, a holy, a godly life. And he says, so that I have not run in vain. So what he's saying is his ministry to the Philippians, and we could say also to us because we read Philippians, we are those who will have an opportunity to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we will be able to say that Paul didn't write in vain, that we saw what he wrote, we heard it, and we tried our best to live it. But of course, it's also, uh, it can be applied to us. We should rejoice in the day of Christ so that we uh, have not run in vain. We know that the, the Apostle Paul in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, says that he strives to be spiritual so that He does not run in vain. All right. Well, let's move from Philippians to Deuteronomy. And we're coming close to the end of chapter 4. That's where we hope to find ourselves 
tonight. I always like to start with the, the book of Deuteronomy, the overall application and lesson. Here, this book of instruction. Learn to fear the Lord your God, and we will have the word fear tonight. Fear the Lord your God and carefully obey all the terms of these instructions. Um, we went through sort of an outline here, and we are in the last of these points under a review of history, of Israel's history. And our breakdown of an exhortation to obey the law and resist idolatry in chapter 4, 1 through 43. We've broken that down into these points. The exhortation to obey the law and resist idolatry, chapter 4, 1 through 43. We've seen the purpose of the law in verses 1 through 8. We saw the purpose of the experience at Horeb or Mount Sinai in 4, 9 through 14. We saw the prohibition against idolatry, verses 15 through 24. The prediction of dispersion, the disobedience of Israel as we progress through chapters in Second Kings. We see that there is going to be dispersion. And then also... There'll be dispersion not only of Israel, the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom as well. So there's a prediction of disobedience, and because of disobedience, dispersion. I've got dispersion, but the verses are 25 to 31. And then we are studying the command to know that the Lord alone is God, verses 32 through 40. And then hopefully also tonight, Point six, the three Transjordanian cities of refuge. We'll see that the Apostle Paul had taught about the cities of refuge in Numbers. But for some reason at that time, and probably legitimately because they had not either yet arrived at the eastern side of the Jordan, or they certainly had not crossed over the the, the Jordan to the west side, the cities were not named at that time. They were not identified. And they are identified in verses 41 through 43. All right. Tonight, beginning in chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, and again, this is the command to know that the Lord alone is God. There is no other God. And this, uh, we might find that a little unusual, but that seemed to have been one of the challenges that Israel had, particularly the first generation, but then also the second generation. One of the reasons is because they had encountered so many uh, idols in Egypt. But later on, because they did not remove all the Canaanites, they lived amongst people who had idols, and they worshipped them. All right, verse 32. Verse 32, and I think I'll read through at least 34, maybe a little longer. And, And by the way, 
This is a continuation of what Moses was teaching. Verse 30, let me go to 30. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you, the difficulties come upon you, in the latter days, this is the prediction of the dispersion, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant, the promises of your fathers, which he swore to them. So there's going to be not only dispersion, but there would be restoration. Verse 32. For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you, since the days that God created man on the earth, And ask from one end of the earth to the other whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. Now, as we read this verse, we might wonder, what is Moses saying? Well, he is going to describe that. He says says that you should look, you should try to find some country that can say the same things That you can say. Verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire? As you have heard. And did they live after facing that experiencing experience? 34. Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of other nations? How? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that God himself is God. There is none other beside him. Okay, this is, to me, a really remarkable passage. This is God saying, is it possible, this is Moses speaking to us, but is there any other nation, is there other people who have ever had this kind of a relationship with a God? Well, certainly not idols. And there is only one God. Has there been any other nation that had this kind of a relationship? And of course the answer is no. So Moses now asks a question of the second generation regarding the history of mankind and God's actions that occurred from the beginning of time. It's not just Israel, but it's from the beginning of time. God loves all mankind. But he chose, he chose a specific people from all the nations to represent him among all those nations. God expresses that the extent that he has gone to the nations to represent him, uh, God expresses the extent that he has gone to, to ensure that Israel would be a special people and the other nations would see in that nation the God of the universe. 
And that's something that Israel was, we could say, that they were required to do. Those nations would know that there was only one God who could accomplish what occurs with Israel. They would be prospered. They would be given a specific land. And they would be a light to the rest of the world. That's what verse 32 says. For now, for ask now concerning the days that are past, all of history, which were before you, since the days that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of the heavens to the other. From one heaven, one part of heavens to the other. Well, that's pretty much uh, everything. That's a merism. It's a figure of speed. It means go wherever you'd like to go. Whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard, this is almost humorous because God says for the second generation to search throughout the world to include the expanse of the universe to find anything that has happened like this. The answer is, I've never seen anything like this. I've never even heard of anything like it. I don't know if you remember that phrase. Uh, that's a phrase that came out of a, uh, a movie, an older movie. Something happened in uh, one of the scenes. And after it's done and it's over, uh, one of the uh, cowboys asks the other and said, have you ever seen anything like that? And his friend says, I never even heard of anything like that. I thought of it when I read this. Verse 33, Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and live? Have they ever, did, has anybody ever faced God in this way and actually lived? This, of course, is a reference to the experience of Israel standing in front of Mount Sinai. We read this in Exodus. Let's turn, let's put a marker there in Deuteronomy 4. Let's go back to Exodus. Exodus 19. Chapter 19. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephaim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a set-apart nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, there's a, pa- a passage here that I wanted to read. Chapter 18, verse 5 says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. 
Mount Sinai became known as the mountain of God. It's God's mountain. This is where he is going to rest, we could say. All right. We can read through what God has done here. And I think that as we read this, we truly uh, don't understand the significance of this event. Of course, we could, but this was truly a unique event. With a booming voice emanating from a massive fire that was consuming the top of the mountain. The terrain feature is called the mountain of God. And that's what we read in chapter 18, verse 5. We don't know the exact location of Mount Sinai. Otherwise, there would probably be people worshiping the mountain. That's how this often happens. And then the events itself. Exodus 19. And we've read part of this. But let's let's go to verse 14. Let me just continue to read here. I think I read to beginning in verse 7. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud. Thick cloud is a dense, dark cloud is what we would understand here. That the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. The reason that we have this dark, deep cloud is it's to be impressive. Even more than impressive, it is to be be fearful. And verse 10 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely die, absolutely die. Be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. Then the trumpet sounds. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. What this tells us is that right now, as they're standing in front of the mountain, at the top of the mountain is the cloud and the fire. But God says, I'm going to come down the mountain and be right in front of them. And I don't think we understand the significance of God's presentation of himself to Israel. Why did God use this event to present himself to Israel? The event was designed to instill into Israel who God was, who he is. Because Israel has a tendency to be distracted. And here we have the fact that he is God alone. He is omnipotent. He is sovereign. He is holy. And the absolute God of the universe. No other, pers- no other person in the universe can begin to approach him. God must be respected and feared if he is to be obeyed. And that's where we found uh, Israel. They were to be brought to a point where obedience 
is the only thing that they could imagine that they should do. This event is specific to Israel. Is it just a historical part of Israel's past? Why should it be important to us? Because this is the same God who has made us as, in the church age, a special people as well. We are members of the body of Christ. We have as close a relationship as anybody can have to God. We are indwelt by all three members of the Godhead, and the Son and the Spirit make continual petitions for us. The same God who roared from the fire on the mountain of God has an intimate relationship with us. And that's the importance of this to us. Verse 34. Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? All of those are close to being very similar. And all of them are events that occurred beginning in Egypt and bringing them up to Mount Sinai. The outstretched arm is a powerful arm. And by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Verse 35, to you it was shown. And the word here for shown means to have been seen. You've seen this that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other beside him. Verse 36. Let's continue or back in Deuteronomy 4. I think I stopped with 35. Verse 36. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might instruct you. On earth he has shown you his great fire, And you heard his words out of the midst of that fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence and with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. All right. Verse 36. Out of heaven, he lets you hear. And one of my favorite Hebrew words here is Shema. It means he not only lets you hear, but it's designed for you to listen and then to obey. Out of heavens, out of heaven, he lets you hear. Shema, his voice that he might instruct you. Now, the word for instruction here, yasa, means to discipline. And that's how it's uh, very often used. But here I think uh, discipline is probably not the best word. I think instruction is probably um, maybe the best. But we could also say that he would correct or admonish you. On the earth, he showed you his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Now, we know that no one has seen God. We've seen the, the physical form of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation. 
But we've never seen God. And we're never going to see the second person of the Godhead, nor will we see God the Holy Spirit. We will see a physical representation, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection body. But you'll notice that this is as close as anybody is ever going to get because they're standing there and he's speaking to them. And I like the, uh, the word here to roar at them. And it certainly was a way of, it certainly was a fearful sight. Verse 37, and, he be, and because he loved your fathers and loving the fathers, he was devoted to them. He had a close intimate relationship with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. The choosing here means that he continued to fulfill the promises that he had, making them special. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence There's another way of describing that, and I think we find it in the New King James Version, but the New American Standard Bible has personally, so that he brought you out of Egypt personally with his mighty power. So the words here for presence, I think that still works, his presence. So the word for his presence, or personally is the Hebrew word for face and it's a fig, it's a figure of speech but it's the sense that God came to them as if face to face that's the sense of this it's a figure of speech and either translation presence or personally is okay God is saying that Israel's departure from Egypt was not merely the ebb and flow of history, which we very often think. But God had his hand in the action. And this is particularly true for Israel's departure from Egypt. We don't always know how historical events occur, either by God's sovereign will or his permissive will. But in this situation, God says that he was directing history. He was causing them to come out of Egypt. Much more could be said about God's will. To be sure, God is aware and involved in the details of history. But in this case, God makes it clear that Israel was carried from Egypt by the omnipotence of God, You'll remember we just read this in Exodus that he carried, he carried them on eagles' wings. God doesn't have wings, but it's the sense that he was being, that they were being carried that way. Verse 38. Verse 38 says, driving out. And driving out is a word that is used in Hebrew to possess Or it can mean to dispossess. It's one of those words that the context dictates this. So driving out or dispossessing from before your 
before you, from before you nations, greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance as it is for you this day. The, the word here to 38, since he's, they're going to dispossess these other nations from their land. And those nations, uh, we read here, were uh, more numerous and more powerful than Israel. As a matter of fact, we know that Israel, uh, in crossing the wilderness, really had, had no opportunity for training as, as an army. But God protected them. And several of the battles that they encountered, we might think that, well, seems that they, they were able to defeat those, those other nations. But the answer to that is no. God fought for them. And as near as we know, they had no casualties. So it says they were driven out. God drove them out from before you. Nations greater and mightier than you. To bring you in to this nation, to this location, they're on the east side of the Jordan, to give you their land as an inheritance. The word for inheritance here in Hebrew means possession, property, or even a portion. You're going to be given a portion. Inheritance, I think, works very well uh, as we understand uh, when something is given to us as an inheritance, it is a possession of ours. And it says... As this is this day. So what God is saying is that God has not given to any nation a land as an inheritance. You know, today there are those who deny that Israel has any right to the land where they are. But the Old Testament tells us that God has given Israel, this land where they were going in to possess, it was their inheritance. And it's an inheritance forever. So today, where Israel, the nation, has returned to what was known as Canaan, and then later it was known as Palestine, it belongs to Israel because God owns the land, and it's him giving an inheritance to Israel. As we go through biblical history, only Israel has been promised a land, and we must respect that divine inheritance. We should never have a problem supporting Israel in their inheritance. Verse 39, Therefore know this day, uh, the word here for know can also be understood. It's yavah, but it can also be understood to acknowledge. And I like the word acknowledge there. Uh, Therefore, acknowledge this day and consider in your heart. The word for consider here is our uh, is a word that's used so often in the Old Testament. Probably could hardly do a study, but it's the Hebrew word shuv, and it means basically to turn. Uh, here it probably means to, to take the 
being uh, wanderers in the wilderness and turned to being an inheritor of this land. Therefore, acknowledge this day and continue or take in your hearts that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Again, this is God through Moses repeating the fact that there is only one God. And it's something that we need to continue to remind ourselves that there is one God. He's the God of the universe. And we should be devoted to him. Verse 40. You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command or I charge you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. The inheritance of the land to Israel is for all time. And then point six here on the slide says the three Transjordanian cities of refuge, verses 41 through 43. Moses, as we begin here, had taught about the cities of refuge in Numbers 35, 9 through 34. But the specific cities were not named. It makes sense that those cities should now be identified. Um, We can identify the three on the eastern side of the Jordan because that territory has been conquered. And the tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have requested those plots, we could say, and the cities in them. And so now Moses is able to identify them. There are those who believe that verses 41 through 43 were probably uh, added later that might have been an editorial note. Well, if they are, I think it's because Moses added it this way. But we can see later on as we go. Verse 41, Then Moses set apart three cities on this side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun. Uh, One of the things we don't have in Hebrew is words for east and west. It's always towards the sea or towards the sun. And that's what we have here, towards the rising of the sun on the east side of the Jordan. Verse 42, that the manslayer might flee there. And the manslayer is someone who has been involved in the death of another. And the individual is known as a manslayer, and he needs to find a refuge somewhere. So he can, first of all, be tried. And if he is found not guilty of what we would call first-degree murder, then uh, he can find refuge in this city. Uh, If he is found guilty of first-degree murder, then he is put to death. That the manslayer, verse 42, that the manslayer might flee there who kills his neighbor unintentionally without, uh, without hating him in time past. And that by fleeing to one 
of these cities he might live. Verse 43, Bezer, the Z here is actually has a sort of a Z, a T sound to it, but Bezer, uh, in the wilderness on the plateau of the Reubenites. So this is one of the cities of refuge. Bezer in the wilderness of the plateau for the Reubenites. And then Ramoth in Gilead. And I think you can see Ramoth Gilead up here. Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites. And Golan, Golan, the Golan Heights. Golan in Bashan. And there's Golan. We've seen that there. All right. So these are the cities of refuge. So that it's interesting. There are three tribes on the east side of Jordan, and there are three cities. When we move to the west side, there's only going to be three cities on the west as well for the the ten tribes because we have half of Manasseh there as well. Now, let me uh, review for us, give us a little bit of a summary from this section. Summary of of chapter 4, 32 through 43. First of all, Moses speaks of the days that are past. And so, I've mentioned this many times. Our history is important to us. It should be important to us as Americans, those of us who live in the United States. Our founding is important. And Moses here speaks of the days that are past. Secondly, Israel had a totally unique experience with her God. No other nation has had this kind of a relationship. And so this is what Moses, God through Moses, is trying to emphasize, is that Israel has a totally unique experience with God. He is their God. And others can be believers and He becomes their God, but not as a nation. Thirdly, the evidence of this experience came directly from the mouth of God. We're told that God speaks to Israel from the mountain, from the foreboding cloud, which had fire in it as well. So the evidence of this experience came directly from the mouth of God. And again, the experience here is the experience of their relationship with God. Fourth, Israel's miraculous deliverance had a purpose. And that was so that they would know God. That they would know God. That they would be able to acknowledge Him as their God. So Israel's miraculous deliverance from Egypt had a purpose. And the experience there at Mount Sinai had a purpose as well. Point five, Israel also was to be instructed by the visual and the sound, the visual and sound at Mount Sinai. It was not simply for God to demonstrate that he could do this, I guess you could say. But Israel was to be instructed. It was supposed to have an impact on them, both visually and in the sounds at Mount Sinai. Point six, 
The event was to instill a spirit of submission to God. It's something that we should have, understanding who God is and what he's done for us. It should instill in us a spirit of submission, submission to God. And that was one of the reasons for this experience at Mount Sinai. The event was to instill a spirit of submission to God. Point seven, the experience was also designed to make them fear to disobey. Very often, that's how we learn. Sometimes as children, children don't automatically obey because they were told to do something. Periodically, it's the discipline that reminds them that they should obey. So the experience was also designed to make them fear to obey, to disobey, rather. Fear to disobey. Eight, God's actions exhibited his loyal love for their fathers. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac and Jacob. And God keeps his promises. And we have many promises in the Old Testament and many promises in the New Testament. We can depend on God to keep those promises. God's actions exhibited his loyal love for their fathers. Bringing Israel out of Egypt and taking them to a land that he had promised to the patriarchs. Nine, God gave the land to Israel and made it an inheritance for them. And again, I've stressed here, is that it is the only people who have been given an inheritance here on this planet. God gave the land to Israel and made it an inheritance for them. Not just for the patriarchs, but for their descendants. And we saw forever, for all times. Ten, Israel was to acknowledge God and to keep his decrees. That was, as we read this in verses 39 and 40, you shall therefore keep his statutes. The word for keep there, shamar, is to observe, uh, to keep, to guard. Eleven, only being obedience would Israel have prosperity and long life. Only being obedience would Israel have prosperity and long life. These were the promises that were made to them. And so we know that life was tough for many of the generations of Israel. Uh, We can certainly study that uh, as we go through the book of Judges. But they were promised prosperity and long life if they were obedient. And so our application, I like the application that we can take right out of 39. Chapter 4, verse 39 says, Therefore, know this day and consider it in your hearts that the Lord himself is God in heaven, in heaven above, and on the earth beneath there is no other. And we should be very careful that we don't form idols here, that we aren't distracted from him, but he is our God. And 
We should know this. We should consider it carefully considered, I think is a better translation, and realize that he is the only God. So, by the way, this is the end of uh, Moses' first speech. And we'll see when we press on in the last part of chapter 4 and into chapters following. As a matter of fact, all the way to 26, I've broken these. I wasn't the first one to do so. Broken Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy into three different speeches. And this is the end of the first one. And the next time we return, uh, or when we return, we will see the second address of Moses, um, which will cover the covenant obligations. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the book of Deuteronomy. We're thankful for the promises that you have made to Israel. Promises, Father, that we can apply to ourselves as well. We're not Israel. But you have made promises to us as members of the body of Christ. And Father, as members of the body of Christ, you have a loyal love for us as well. And you have many promises. And we pray, Father, that we would respond to your love and to those promises. Apply them so that we might, Father, not only please you, but be blessed by you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.